The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season too. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for Flight 8900. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Baku, Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München, Sankt Petersburg, Bukarest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. Tokyo Football Show at the Euros. Wales cook turkey's goose in Baku whilst Russia find a finish and Italy a living La Vida Locatelli. Plus, we look ahead to Thursday's games as Denmark return to action and Group C completes its second round of games. This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Here we are again then, reflecting on another day of Euro 2020 action. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, joined by our Russian rep and all-round Euros encyclopedia, Sasha Gurionov. Hi, Sasha. Uh, hello, Matt. Uh, also with us from The Athletic, Michael Cox. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Matt. Good morning for you, listener, but it's a very hot, sticky night where we are. Uh, but there's only one place that we can start today's show. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. What a performance from Wales in Baku then as they earned a 2-0 win against Turkey to all but confirm their place in the knockout stages of the European Championships for the second time in succession. Goals from the outstanding Aaron Ramsey in a last gasp Connor Roberts effort meant Gareth was bailed out after sending a penalty into orbit. Uh, Michael, Wales only had 37% possession, but it felt like they were largely in control, save for a, a spell in the first half where things got so weird that Robbie Savage morphed into Don Goodman. I didn't spot that. Um, I thought Wales were excellent, actually. I think in one sense, it was one of the most impressive displays we've seen so far. We know they're not, they don't have the deepest pool of talent, but what have they got? Well, they've got two outstanding players in Bell and Ramsey who continually combined, including for the first goal. They've got two players who just make life difficult for opponents in different ways, um, with more up front and with Daniel James, who I think has been very useful carrying the ball. And the rest of them played functional roles. I thought the centre-backs worked well as a duo, largely kept the almost quiet, protected well by the two central midfielders. And yeah, like you say, Matt, even though it was 1-0, I didn't really feel like Wales were ever going to concede, to be honest. A couple of set-piece chances, I suppose, Turkey had. But overall, I thought they were comfortable, really deserving of, uh, of the victory. And yeah, four points after two games. They're not through statistically, but I think the people who, mod- who model this kind of thing reckon that's about 99% chance. And that's assuming that's 99%, assuming they don't get anything from a game against Italy, which they could well do because I think Italy might rotate rest players. Um, so, yeah, great day for Wales. 
Uh, Aaron Ramsey, the first player to score for Wales at two major tournaments. Gareth Bale, the first player to get an assist for the country at two. Uh, Sash, on, on last night's show, we asked for those two to come to the party. They didn't just come to it. They, they brought the piñata and the party poppers as well. Well, I think it helps when the opposition um, are in a state of mind fog where you can keep on doing the same thing over and over again and they just don't pick it up at all, which I thought was astonishing. And I think it just shows the general, I think, incompetence and lack of awareness that we have, have, we have seen from Turkey at this tournament so far. Because, I mean, Ramsey scored from effectively third very similar ball that was played through through Turkey's defence. The midfield didn't react at all. I think Yokushlu and um, Tufan had absolutely dreadful tournaments so far. I just have no idea what's going around them. The back line doesn't seem to understand when to step out. I mean, this is a level of disorganisation I really didn't expect. Michael did, pointing out the terrible defensive record uh, <laughs> over the last year. But I thought, you know, I, I, I thought those were more individual errors that they'll be able to get rid of. But, like, look, I mean, I... Turkey, the more longer tournament goes on, the less well-coached Turkey look. I mean, it's the midfield I thought was absolutely terrible. At the back, uh, again, it's like separate players. They don't seem to communicate. They miss out the same things. And I thought, you know, the uh, the goal, the coup de grace that um, Wales administered deep into injury time, just summed this whole thing up. Bale did exactly the same thing twice from two different corners. And they just let him walk up the <laughs> line. And I was looking at this... I mean, like, this is park football. This is absolutely terrible. Um, so I, uh, of course, questions would be asked of Gunesh as to how does this end up? But I think the players as well. I mean, it, you know, all the fighting towards there. And this is like almost a textbook Turkey collapse where they just like run around in rage and completely lose their shape. I, I, I'm embarrassed for Turkey, to be honest, at this tournament. Yeah, like headless chickens, you might say. Um, quite the vault fast that from from Gurionov, who, who gave them the kind of praise in, in our preview pod uh, that, yeah, so much praise for Turkey's Bernard Matthews would have blushed at that. Uh, somebody who should get some praise, uh, Michael, I think, is Robert Page. I mean, coming into this tournament, or I should say before he took over from Ryan Giggs in the build-up to the tournament, he'd managed 127 games and they were all in League One with Northampton and Port Vale. It's an incredible step up that he's made. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the funny thing about international management. You do, with respect, sometimes end up with managers in situations you... I mean, you, you think if he hadn't got that job and he'd taken a club job, what level would it have been at? And you kind of think the same with Gareth Southgate before he took the England job, probably wouldn't have been a Premier League job. Steve Clark as well, I'm not kind of sure what level he'd be at. Even Yogi Love, if you look at his club managerial career, he, he barely coached anyone of note. So, yeah, it is one of the quirks of international football, but he seems to have them very well organised. And, uh, yeah, I think they I think they were excellent in this game, yeah. What's their ceiling, Sash, in the competition, do you think? Because if they come second in the group, it's going to be either Russia, Finland or Denmark. They'd fancy their chances against any of those sides. Uh, yeah, I think they could uh, They could give all the, those, those sides a game. Um, I thought it was interesting how... I, thought, I mean, they played different from the way they played against Switzerland. I thought they were very underwhelming against Switzerland. I thought... So they were surprising. I mean, they were bossed by Mbolo um, uh, for, for an hour um, uh, or so, which I thought wasn't a very good sign. Um, and uh, I mean, on today's performance, they were obviously very good in terms in, in terms of reacting to the opponent. Um, and I think, you know, going forward, once they get to the knockout stages, I think it will be onus will be on the other teams to attack. So given, you know, that they, they looked very comfortable in today's setup, I think, um, yeah, to, to be honest, looking at the potential second round opponent, uh, why not? 
Gareth Bale might not take the next penalty. Uh, Kiefer Moore <laughs> has scored four of his last four penalties. He might ask for the next one. Bale, the first player to miss the goal frame entirely with a penalty at the Euros since Raul for Spain against France in 2000. That excluding shootouts. Uh, the other thing that I thought was incredibly enjoyable from, from this game was the kits. Two of the best on show in the tournament thus far for me. Though I was hearing a lot of stick for, for Wales as Australia ripoff. And even now, both Michael and Sasha and producer Abby are shaking their heads at me. I'm wider the mark here, am I? Like a Gareth Bale penalty. Uh, no, surely it's it's a different shade of yellow. I, I, my impression was this was always the classic Welsh away kit, unless they copied it from a Socceroos in, in the what in the early 80s and changed the colour slightly. No, I, for me, I was looking at it thinking, no, no, this is Wales. This is this is how they always look away from home. Did you like it? I like the turkey as well, all red. If you, if you go all one colour, that's always a winner with me. Thought, uh, I thought for viewers uh, watching this in black and white, it was enough of a contrast to separate the two sides. <laughs> <laughs> One final stat to finish off. It comes from uh, Richard Jolly and Dr. Joe. What a head-to-head battle that would be. Uh, both tweeting that only France can better Wales five wins across the last two tournaments. Uh, so well done to them. We'll reflect on Wednesday's other two. Uh, go on, Sash. I think it's even better. I think Wales averaged two points a game in the finals tournaments, which is, I think, the best the best out of all the finals participants. Um, I know they've only played, what, eight games, but I think it's still a very good result. And I also think today, um, like looking at that performance in Baku, I mean, they were really in lines then there. I mean, there's 400 fans in the team and they were up against, what, a 20-odd, 30,000 home fans. Um, I've heard different uh, attendance stats for some reason. But anyway, so they were were vastly outnumbered. Aliyev and Erdogan were there, you know, massive sort of, sort of pro-Turkey fervor about the whole place. And they came there and uh, they they absolutely destroyed them, uh, which I thought was brilliant and sort of very uh, sort of men of Harlech, very much outnumbered, very heroic performance, which I thought was very, very admirable. Yeah, as Michael said, one of the performances of the tournament so far, no doubt. Uh, well done to Wales then. Next, we'll reflect on Wednesday's other two games. England team meeting. Gather around, boys. Now, look, we can't give our fans any reason to get too excited. Raheem fluffing it in for 1-0. That's great, but we could have had five. Phil, why were you shooting so early on? 1-0 after four minutes would have been a disaster. I don't want to hear it's coming home until at least the quarterfinals. Until then, we scrape every game. Capiche? It's easy to get carried away. Fortunately, we're giving you a free £5 bet bill on England v Scotland, so you can back whatever might happen. Paddy power! Pre-match bet, but a bet's only been two plus legs on an exclusive. Must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So, Sasha, it's back on. Russia bouncing back from that ropey display against Belgium to pick up the points against Finland in St. Petersburg. Hardly a thriller, but a stunning goal from Alexei Miranchuk to win it. Finland would have qualified for the knockout stages. They had a goal disallowed, uh, rightly so. After that, they didn't offer too much. Um, Sash, Stanislav Cherishov made some made some big calls in terms of personnel and, and tactical changes and they got the win. So they paid off. It's, it's weird with Cherishov because he made some big calls for the first game. And in this game, we actually saw what we expected to see all along, as in a 3-5-1. One. Um, so you kind of have a bit of a diamond in the middle of that uh, midfield with Miranchuk at the tip. Uh, so, I mean, this was a recognisable formation. This was a formation that they tried with Barinov, a midfielder, to bring the ball out of the back. They tried it against, I think, Bulgaria uh, in the run-up to the tournament. Um, 
One thing that was um, untried was Kuzaev on the left, and this is because obviously Yuri Zhirkov, everyone's favorite left wing back, um, has had to retire from the tournament injured. But I think overall, uh, this made a lot more sense than what Chichester tried in in the first game, and especially you have Golovin and Miranchuk. I think you need you need those both of those lads playing. And what I think was what we saw today was actually kind of he made use of them at least in the first half, and I thought the way that kind of. Duba attracted all the attention and played the ball off to Miranchuk. It's like we have seen that sometimes, but maybe not often enough. And I have to say, for Miranchuk, that was that was his textbook finish. Um, very sort of he caresses the ball into the net. I mean, it wasn't hit very hard, but it was beautifully placed. He scored a couple of goals like that this season in his few minutes at Atalanta, um, and it was lovely to see. I, I thought that uh, Finland were terribly unlucky uh, with the with that early header. Uh, he shouldn't really have straight offside, in my opinion. And and in the second half, I thought there was a bit of a danger, Russia going, you know, a little bit too much to sleep, maybe inviting too much Finnish pressure. But I think when we saw the difference in quality, that quality isn't really there for the Finns. And I think you have to recognize in the first game it was very much smash and grab they had one one shot on target which should have been saved and them themselves you know had the, had the penalty Hradeski saved the penalty against Denmark so I think that that result in Copenhagen was very illogical today's result was more logical and Russia now are in an interesting position because they could potentially be going to Copenhagen uh, to face uh, Denmark with two defeats on board, which is not something that we expected. So maybe Russia, I mean, depends again how they play and, um, you know, whether they can get the result. But uh, suddenly Russia are actually looking in a decent position to get out of the group. Finland, though, Michael, they kind of played down to expectations here, I think. Is the key for them against Belgium to kind of keep the score respectable and then hope that, that three points would be enough to get them through? That's an interesting question. I had not considered that. Um... I don't, I, I don't think that would be enough, will it? I think if you get three points, if you're going to go through as a best third place side, I think you probably need zero goal difference. Maybe minus one, just thinking about previous tournaments like that. I must admit, I completely hadn't considered that, but that's interesting. I think they'll probably, I think they'd be best off playing for a, a point, wouldn't they? I guess nil nil. But yeah, interesting. I mean, with Group A and, and B, it's funny, isn't it? Because you get your results and then sometimes you have to sit down and just watch the other teams and hope the results go your way, which is a, a slight quirk of this format. But yeah, interesting to see what happens. Uh, the bad news, Sash, for Russia was that injury to, to Mario Fernandez and the fact that he was whisked straight off the hospital means that it didn't, doesn't look good for his future participation in the tournament. Well, it looked pretty terrible um, at the time because they suspected spinal injury. Uh, but when the hospital had the scans, and apparently there is no spinal injury. So he actually flew back to Moscow with the rest of the team. So maybe uh, he might actually take part in the rest of the tournament. Of course, like the Russians have had terrible luck with injuries. Obviously, obviously Zhirkov uh, mentioned already Kudryashov, uh, one of the centre-backs, has missed his second game now. He might be back for the next one. Um, so I think they're, they're sort of in danger of slightly running out of defenders. I mean, also you have to bear in mind Kuzaev, um today might not have played because he um, uh, was the player who collided with Castagna in the first game. Obviously, Castagna ended up missing the rest of the tournament with a fractured cheekbone. Kuzaev, from what I understand, was concussed at the time, but he was okay for today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I saw those players going down, I was getting a little bit worried. I did think today that... Um, you know, Finland were sort of putting themselves about a bit at the back. I think there is, I don't think there was that much player acting from the Russians. I think the Finns eventually were going in a little bit too hard for perhaps trying to make up. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche trying to make up for the lack of quality, but I do think it, it, it was it, towards the end of the game, I think the elbows were flying a bit. A great stat from that game, by the way. Russia coach Cherchesov, the only goalkeeper to have conceded for Russia against Finland after he did so in 1995. 
Well, Italy are the first team to confirm their place in the last 16 after they recorded the very definition of a routine win against Switzerland in Rome. Manuel Locatelli, the difference maker here, the Sassuolo man with the finest brace since you on that turbulent Ryanair flight before Chiro Immobile rounded things off. Si andata a prendere altissimo il pallone l'Italia. Chiro Immobile 3 a 0. And Michael, lots of people jumping aboard the, the Italy hype train and, and you can see why because they're on this brilliant winning run and they look great again here. But it's not as if they've been overly tested in this tournament so far. So can we can we make a real assessment based on what we've seen in, in the first two games? No, that's a fair point. But I still think when you look at their, their shape, their movement, the patterns of play, I think there's a real understanding there. I know a lot of people have said it, but it just feels very different to any Italian side I've seen before. I like how much forward running there is. It's a simple concept, but they've got pace in behind the defence with, with the Mobile and Berardi. Um, I thought it would be just Barella making the midfield runs, but of course Locatelli has come into the side. Probably wouldn't be playing if Verratti was fit, but be interesting to see what happens there because he feels undroppable now. He was brilliant today. I thought really good in the first game as well. And I mean, they've got a couple of, they had a couple of players out. Verratti wasn't here and, and Chiellini went off injured earlier. The Cherby came in, did really well. And, there's just, yeah, Florenzi at right back as well. Di Lorenzo had a good game. They they just really seem cohesive. Um, and yeah, their, their play with the ball has been very good. They've recovered the ball very quickly. I don't think they've been tested too much defensively. Um, we know Chiellini and, and Bonucci are you know, a very well-established partnership, but they're getting on a bit. So maybe against quicker forwards, they might be tested. But then again, Mbolo was brilliant in the first game and he barely got a sniff here. So... I think we're right to be positive about Italy. They've obviously got home advantage as well. I think that's a massive boost for those sides that do have that uh, in this tournament. But yeah, they look good. I think I think they look serious contenders. And as well as a very deep squad, Sash, they also look an incredibly well-coached team at the moment. We, we gave Robert Page the praise, but what Mancini's done with that Italy team over the last couple of years is a real reputation enhancer for him, I think. Yeah, I think... Um... What what maybe gets lost in these two games is how much they actually nullified their opponent rather than maybe the opponent being that rubbish. So basically, against against Turkey, they cut out a lot of the potential counterattacks. I mean, they cut out, they, they pressed them so much that Turkey in the end were just a, had to resort to hoofing the ball, uh, which was, of course, um, uh, very easy then uh, for Italy to deal with, especially with the guys like Chiellini and Bonucci. And I thought uh, that today, again, um, like to nullify Mbolo, the aggression in midfield, which they don't do all the time, but they switch it on at the right time. I thought the third goal was great because Switzerland are trying to step out. Okay, it's late in the game, but two players pounce. Uh, I forget who the Swiss player was. Immediately uh, goes to Immobile, who, who finishes. And sort of this very direct aggression uh, is certainly kind of goes against sort of this this Italian stereotype of, you know, win the ball back, have be patient with it, stuff like that. So, I, and I think they they also um, become incredibly watchable. And I, I know they're on this mad run at the moment, but I think it's all aspects of play. It's a lot. It's great balance. Uh, I mean, the fact is, I mean, it doesn't matter who you play, but you got, was it ten games without conceding a goal? Now, I mean, that's extraordinary. It's, it, 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 it is just literally amazing, particularly for something like international football, uh, where you know managers only get to spend X amount of time with their players. So, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, Mancini, Mancini, Mancini has done an incredible job here. Michael, other than Granite Xhaka's hair, is there anything that catches your eye at all about Switzerland and, and the way they approach the games? Because they just seem like a real non-entity of a side to me. Yeah, they've been disappointing. I thought Mbolo was brilliant in the first game, as I say, probably one of the best individual performances. I've been impressed by his development. I thought of him as a player just going in behind all the time, but I think his back-to-goal play has been good. 
Uh, he's dropped deep well. He's done a few things well. But um, they, they've always been a country that I think has, has usually had at most one real star attacking player um, and, and tend to depend on him. I think of Alex Fry in years gone by. And that's Shakiri. And Shakiri hasn't really played over the last couple of years, has he? And when you look at his international record, there was a period where he was actually really prolific for Switzerland over a period of two or three years. And that's dropped off completely. And he was he was really not in the game today. And I think, especially when you use that system, when you've got a 3-4-1-2, if that number 10's not in the game, you really struggle to link your midfield and attack. And yeah, they, they were they were disappointing, weren't they? They didn't really put up any kind of fight. Never really sensed a comeback. So yeah, I, I agree. They've they and Turkey have been real disappointments in this group, and of course they will play each other. Um, you know, both with a vague hope of staying in the competition, but on the basis of their game so far, they don't really deserve it. I very much enjoyed a television crossover between Switzerland and UK over the last couple of days. I was speaking to my mate Bello yesterday, who lives in Geneva, and asking him, you know, what sort of analysis are they offering on the Swiss television? Apparently, uh, Stefan Onshaw was. Um, on with uh, the beautifully named Yves Debonair. And he said that uh, in the first game against Wales, they ran an average of 8.5 kilometers only, and which means they didn't give everything in that game. Today, uh, straight after the match, uh, Gary Neville is uh, saying, it's embarrassing, show some urgency, very much park life. And then Keane was disapprovingly saying, given up the fight, they've given up the fight. So it's good to see that uh, the analysts in Switzerland and in, uh, in England both agree. Sam Matterface was telling us that, that Locatelli's a big Murder She Wrote fan. Um, we're more Henry Lansbury than Angela Lansbury here. So that was Wednesday. Without wishing to alarm you, listener, there's only three more days where three games are being played at different times. The first of those, logically enough, is on Thursday. We'll preview those games soon. First, though, some Euros news. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to the Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with Matt Davis-Adams. The chief executive of Headway, the brain injury charity, has criticised UEFA and the referee in Tuesday's game between France and Germany for the way they dealt with the head injury suffered by Benjamin Pavard. 
Peter McCabe said, The way this incident was handled was sickening to watch. UEFA has to come out and immediately explain how it was allowed to happen and what action it will now take to ensure something similar doesn't occur in the future. Elsewhere, Paul Pogba gave a bottle of alcohol-free Heineken beer, the Ronaldo Coca-Cola treatment during his post-match press conference following that Germany v France game. Pogba, as you may well know, is a devout Muslim and thus doesn't drink alcohol. And not that alcohol-free beer has much alcohol in it. Um, Michael, on last night's show, Tom was touting your enthusiasm for for guzzling Coke. Would you like to defend your your favourite vegetable extract and aspartame concoction against Ronaldo's accusations? Might might boost the share price a little bit, or or maybe you'd want to throw some shade at another soft drink. You might never get another chance to to stick it to Umbongo, for instance. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, no, I mean I. I... The, the Russia Finland game today was the first one I've watched in a pub, and I had two bottles of Coke, one for the first half, one for the second half. That's all I have to say. Enjoyed them both. Always full fat. Yeah, I, I, I really, I, Diet Coke to me just tastes absolutely vile. Yeah, but, I'm totally uh, on board with that. See also yeah. Coke Zero, any of those other pretenders. Maybe have a Cherry Coke once every few years, but you often regret it when you do. Um, this podcast is not sponsored by Coke. Anyway, that was Wednesday's action. Here's what's coming up on Thursday. Uh, Two offerings from Group C. There's also a match from Group B, namely Denmark versus Belgium in Copenhagen. Earlier, I caught up with our man in the know, Niels Harald of Eurosport. Niels, we'll start with with Christian Eriksen because whatever Denmark do, that that's going to be the big story of their Euros and probably probably everybody else's too. Seems he's recovering well. What about the rest of the squad though? We've heard from the coach and from Kasper Schmeichel this week. Are their their attitudes reflective of the majority of the players that they they feel a little let down by UEFA? Yeah, that is the main subject now. What happened after the game in Copenhagen on Saturday? What 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 was the choice for the players? Because they seem to only have two choices to play Saturday night or play Sunday. And and it's 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 still creating anger in Denmark. People are still very angry about that. And it's being discussed. I was out with some friends yesterday and we're not talking about anything else than Christian Eriksen and what happened Saturday night. So it's still a big theme, yeah, obviously. And the chairman of the Danish FA has now gone out and said that he, he wants the rules to be changed. I mean, you have rules for the corona. You have possibility to postpone a game for 48 hours. He want he wants rules to, to apply to this situation for the future also. Is there much of an appetite to even carry on with, with participating in the tournament? Not, not just from the players, but from the supporters too? I tell you what... It, it, I, I talked to people who were at the stadium on this Saturday and who were going there tomorrow and everybody was like, they, they are longing to come back. They are longing to see a reaction from the players. They are longing to see those players who live for football, who have been looking forward to this tournament for the last two years. They want to see a reaction from them. They want to see them playing for Christian. And it's like a nation united around the team, around Christian Eriksen, but also around the team who are supporting a positive uh, supporting the team in a positive way that's that's the feeling right now in Denmark everybody just wants to go to get the game played now and get it done in a positive way yeah and of course the fact that it's being played in Copenhagen will presumably only increase the emotion of the occasion it's it's going to be a memorable a memorable game whatever the score is yeah it will be and i just saw Romelu Lukaku who obviously knows Christian personally uh, has been saying that after 10 minutes, the game will be stopped for a minute of applause for Christian, who is 
it, it, and it, this is strange, the hospital is 500 meters away from the stadium. So he will probably from his window be able to see the stadium where that game is being played, the game he was supposed to be a part of, to be the central figure. And he will be in his shirt, the national team shirt, watching the game from his hospital bed. And the emotions are running wild. Everybody, everybody is just expecting this. 25,000 people in the stadium, it will be so emotional. Many people who were traumatized Saturday will be there again. And that will be a relief for them to see a, a game go ahead tomorrow. It, it feels slightly insensitive to, to ask about the actual kind of mechanics of the game. But but that is what we're here for, essentially. Who's likely to start in place of, of Ericsson? And how can they replace his creativity? Uh, maybe they will look a different way. Matthias Jensen will probably start uh, for him. and But obviously uh, the other players in the team will have to step up for him because he is a central figure on the Danish national team, you know, played over 100 games. So he will be missed. <laughs> in every way he'll be missed. But I think you will see a very attacking Danish team and Matthias Jensen will probably be coming, uh, be coming into the team and play his role. But it'll also be a team, a game where everybody's looking for what a Belgium coming with. How are we going to lock down Lukaku? So a lot of focus is on how do we stop the supplies to Lukaku? How do we stop Lukaku himself? Will the Danish captain, Simon Kerr, how will he be doing tomorrow? That is the focus. How will Kasper Michael be doing? Kasper, who went to see Christian Eriksen in the hospital and has been very open about that process he's going, he's going through now. So there's a lot of focus on the team as a collective before that game. And in terms of the team, do they need to get something from the game against Belgium or, or would a, a win against Russia in all probability be enough to, to take you through anyway? Yeah, the, yeah the, the funny thing is it can be, it can, it can very well be that three points will be enough to go out from the group to get, to get to, the, to the next round. They have a game against Russia and if they win that, uh, probably by a two goals margin, they will go through. And it looks like that, except from if Bel- if Finland uh, do something against Belgium, which is highly unlikely. So the feeling tomorrow is it's it's not free. No football game is is uh, free, but it, it, there might be another chance on Monday against Russia, and that's that's a good thing to think about also. Niels, thanks so much for your time today. I don't know if enjoy the game is the right thing to say, but um, but I'm Tell sure what, it'll be one you remember. Yeah, we will enjoy it. it, it it's a relief uh, that, that the game is being played and that he's still alive. Uh, Denmark is very, very united about, around the team now. So uh, it will be two very special hours in Parkland Stadium in Kony. Harold there. As for Belgium, a win sees them through to the last 16. Sasha, were they were they flattered by their opponents in the first game or, or do you think we're looking at a, a genuine contender here? Yeah, I don't really know what, what to get out of the first game given that Russia were absolutely appalling. Um, and be, for the first 45 minutes and then they switched uh, to the normal formation and they looked better. But even leading some of the Russian players saying, ah, oh, Belgium are nothing special. It's all right. You know, Lukaku is uh, not, not, nothing surprising about the way he plays football. Uh, I, think this, I think this was from Divier, from whom he ran away to score the third, uh, which I thought was an interesting comment. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's impossible to read anything into the Russia game given how bad Russia were. So if Denmark are looking... Um, I mean, maybe what Denmark are looking at is don't try to play a very defensive 4-4-2 uh, because uh, the Belgians will overload one of the flanks eventually and then you'd really badly struggle. 
Is, is the X factor Lukaku here, Michael, in terms of Belgium going far in the tournament? Because, I mean, you'd maybe throw Immobile into this as well, but but he's the striker who stood out the most from, from the opening games that we've seen. Yeah, I think so. I think he's such a good all-rounder now. I think there's always been some criticisms of him in the past, but I think he's developed his game a lot into... And, uh, and it feels like he just dominates the the side. I mean, obviously, they didn't have De Bruyne in the first game, um, but he, he just seems the centrepiece of it. And uh, yeah, you're right. It looks like he's shaping up to have a really good tournament. Denmark have lost the last two meetings between the two. They both happened in the Nations League 6-2, the aggregate score. And to confirm what Neil said earlier, Belgium will pay tribute to Christian Eriksen by kicking the ball out of play in the 10th minute. And that's a nice touch. Something um, interesting was pointed out to me from the Danish press. Um, the Danes do tend to lose key players in big tournaments. Um, obviously not to this extent, but just with regular injuries. They've uh, lost Alan Simonson in 1984 to a broken leg in the first game against France, reached the semi-final. Henrik Andersen uh, in 1992, I think he uh, yeah, it was had a horrific kneecap injury in the semi-final. And uh, William Quist in 2018, I think, broke his ribs against Peru and they were unlucky to go out on penalties in the, sec- in the second round. So I think it'd be interesting, of course, to see how they reconfigure themselves uh, without uh, Ericsson. But on top of this, I th- uh, again, from what I understand, the Danish press has pretty much been full of, uh, you know, of talk about the psychological impact. So it, it would be, I think, interesting in a slightly maybe voyeuristic sense whether a group of players having gone through that can, can refocus on, on football uh, when, you know, such you, when, when something as terrible as that happens, as, as what happened to Ericsson and put, put your job kind of into perspective, whether this team can actually refocus um, on the tournament and whether it's something that we can ask of them at all. Yeah, you kind of feel like it'll either be the, the best thing for them to get back out there or, or something they could really do without, but I guess we'll find out uh, when the game kicks off. Also on Thursday, Netherlands against Austria. That's the late game. No Marco Arnautovic for this one. He's been given a one-game ban after being found guilty of the very vague charge of insulting another player after his tirade slash celebration following his goal against North Macedonia. Athletic subscribers can read a piece by Daniel Taylor uh, attempting to understand Arnautovic. Uh, it kind of feels... Michael, this is a sort of typically mealy-mouthed response from UEFA by saying, well, we'll give you a one-game ban and forget about it and hopefully it'll go away. Yeah, pretty much. I think that's probably true. Um, Without wishing to detract from the seriousness, I did like Arnautovic's message, which said, I'm not a racist. I have friends in almost every country, which is one of the most Chris Finch things I've ever heard a footballer (laughs) say. And I want to... I want him to get a map out and write down the name of each of his friends. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just typical Arnautovic, isn't it? He was kind of on the fringes of the squad, on the fringes of the team. He gets a chance, he scores a goal, and then he makes everything difficult for himself. So yeah, all a bit unnecessary. Interestingly, um, I think in Austria, they haven't really focused on this. They focused instead on the euphoria of actually winning a game at the Euros, which which was a first for them. I think the, the television was referring to them as the heroes of the day. But it's curious because like, I went, like, I don't really see Austria as a footballing nation. I mean, I went there for the Euros <laughs> in 2008. And okay, this was after Austria got knocked out. And, you know, people were watching football, but it didn't really strike me as like being this place, which, which is mad for it. And from what I understand, you know, they love their skiing. And apparently uh, one of the um, sort of main sort of cultural websites, Metropole, 
www.eurozone.at, which explains Austria in English, has actually absolutely no mention of the Euros or the victory whatsoever. So this kind of, I think, almost shows where on the sort of everyday radar football is in that country. Um, having, and also, I, another thing I didn't know was that the Awake It, in which they scored, um, in which they scored that, this famous 3-1 win, could actually cause a bit of controversy in their run-up um, to the tournament because the turquoise color of the pattern on the shirts and the shorts and the socks, uh, I think it matches the, the colors of the OVP, which is... Um, the Österreichische uh, Volkspartei, which is the ruling party, um, so I think they were be, being accused of um, kowtowing to the uh, to the Chancellor Sebastian Kurz. Um, so it's a few interesting parallel things sort of running around Austria. Some of them have nothing to do with football, which is almost to be expected of Austria. <laughs> well, both these teams looking for a win to get them through to to the next round. There was a, there was a heavy element of fortune, Michael, about the Netherlands victory against Ukraine. Do you think Frank de Boer's got it within him to to spot the mistakes that he made in that game and rectify them, or is it just going to be more kind of free flowing jazz football? Don't worry about midfield. We'll just try and score more goals than the other team. Um, how do you mean in terms of got a bit lucky against Ukraine? Well, there just seemed to be a sort of a lack of a real cohesive and, and obvious plan and, and the defending was sort of slapdash and they were reliant yeah. on, on good finishes rather than, than any kind of great game plan to win it. Yeah, maybe. I, I thought I thought they were quite good for long periods. I mean, I know they, they lost a 2-0 lead. One goal I, I thought was just brilliant from Yamalenko. The other was quite a good set piece. But I must say they were probably better than I expected. I quite like the combination of the front three. Weghorst is just an old school battering ram. Depay is a real dribbler. And Wijnaldum in this late running role. And I like the way that they got the wing backs forward as well. I thought Dumfries was very prominent. I quite like Van Anholt as well. Mainly because if you're going to play, you know, really aggressive wing backs who get into the box, I think he's actually a really good finisher for a, a full back or wing back. So I'm quite interested to see them play. I don't think they press very well. I think they can be played through too easily. And, and that is... Um, I gather has been a bit of a theme since Dubois took over, um, but I'm I'm quite interested to see uh, how they do. I'm just quite pleased to have the Netherlands back at a tournament. I must say they're not they're not a great side. There's not a vintage generation by any means, but uh, I thought that game against Ukraine was was really enjoyable. And if they want to play like that again, I'm I'm definitely up for it. They ought to win this match, Sasha, aren't they? Uh, against Austria, yes, uh, I, th- I think they do. Um, I, I don't see anything particular that Austria showed in the first game against Macedonia of course you could argue you know the two subs worked but you know just better players than Alaba again against North Macedonia it's possibly enough to win you the game though I have to say the pass of the tournament for me so far is uh, Zabitzer assist for the first goal I thought the line drive was absolutely gorgeous uh, so maybe and also you know Zabitzer is a gorgeous player so maybe he can provide some resistance there well, Thursday's action gets underway with the Group C encounter between Ukraine and the aforementioned North Macedonia in Bucharest. Both sides lost their opening match, which sets this one up nicely. Um, now, Michael has literally written the books on tactics, but checks notes. It says here, Sasha has much to say on Ukraine tactics wise. So the floor is yours. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, props to Shevchenko, you know, being very confident of his methods. So he actually went 4-1-4-1 in the first game against Holland. And I think there's a few factors that really played against them. Of course, the goalkeeping errors, but I thought structurally. So you got Taras Stepanenko, who didn't play, and Sidarchuk played again instead of him in, in central, in holding midfield. Sort of not the same level of player. And I think they were slightly overwhelmed there, particularly by Vinaldum. I think from what I understand, the Ukrainians weren't 
really particularly impressed, you know, by the board, the manager, but they were definitely impressed with the Dutch players. Um, and uh, for me, I think Gini van Alden was absolutely key here. So I think because Stepanenko wasn't there, it kind of affected the way Malinowski and Jinchenko play. But I think the real kick in the teeth, which, uh, which is a bit of a pun given that Zubkov actually means teeth, uh, was losing the left winger um, to injury. And Zubkov has been kind of injury prone. He's it's, 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 it's had this like history of niggling injuries. Might be out for the rest of the tournament, might not be. And I thought when Marlos came on instead of him for 15 minutes, he offered absolutely nothing. And they got the shape back when Shaparenko came on. So I think for the game, for, for, the, for the next game, there is... Um, uh, I think there is a hope that maybe uh, Stepanenko might be back, even though I think Sidorchuk should be enough against North Macedonia. At the same time, we might see an inverted winger uh, on the left, Igor Tsigankov uh, from Dynamo Kiev. Keep an eye out for this guy because I think he might he might be doing a move soon. Might uh, might go on the left, of course. Um, uh, Yermolenko is now untouchable. After he was actually a bit of a doubt whether he's going to start the first game, but you know he played really really well, scored an absolute um, absolute belter as well. So he's going to uh, keep his place. So I think you know. This, this combination of things, you know, they, the Ukrainians are a bit upset about losing the first game, but it's not, they're, they're quite realistic and they're not exactly in the panic. And I think they're comfortably stronger than the other two sides. So I think we should see them in the last 16. Yeah, it feels like a good match for them to kind of hit their straps, Michael. Is there much that we can say about North Macedonia that isn't incredibly patronising or relates to Goran Pandev in some way? Um, <laughs> probably not. No, I... Not being patronised, that is tough. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say that it's interesting to see how they do because of their weird qualification, but that is quite patronising. No, I mean, if if we're being honest, Ukraine against North Macedonia as the early kickoff in the threes, probably the least appetising game of the tournament so far. But nevertheless, I will watch it. And if anything happens, I will be sure to be back on this podcast talking about it. But I, <laughs> as a preview, I think Sasha has covered it very well. Excellent. High time we got some odds from Paddy Power. Over to you, producer Ben. Thank you, Matt. I'm on the line with Jason Murphy from Paddy Power. Again, how nice. Um, Jason, let's look ahead to a couple of the games tomorrow then. Uh, I'm interested in uh, Denmark v Belgium. Can you give me the overall and the first goal scorer market here, please? Yeah, so we've Denmark 3-1. The draw 21 to 10 and Belgium 19 to 20. And in terms of the first goal score market, there's only one place that people will be looking in. That's Lukaku. He's 10 to 3 in the first goal score market here. He's 22 goals in 19 matches since the 2018 World Cup, 62 goals in 94 games for his international career. It's phenomenal. And he's only turned 28 last month. What I'd say to you about that price is with potentially no Eden Hazard or De Bruyne on the pitch, if they get a penalty, Lukaku's going to take them. That price of 10 to 3 is essentially saying if Belgium have scored the first goal, it's a 37% chance that it's Lukaku who's gotten it. But if you think he scores more of Belgium's goals than that when he's on the pitch, then that 10 to 3 is definitely an interesting angle for this game. Well, Jason, that was so exciting. Um, why don't we repeat the exercise for Holland versus Austria? First goal scorer and overall, please. Yeah, so Netherlands 4-7, to seven, the draw 3-1 in Austria 9-2. Both sides took the leads in their opening game and were pegged back uh, before leaving it late to get the result, the Dutch in particular. And I was not convinced by them. A lot of the turnovers that we've seen in the game, it wasn't due to good touch pressure. It was more like a tennis match. Ukraine making a lot of unforced errors, which we've seen in particular with Bouchon as well for, for the winner that was scored by Dumfries. And in the goal score market then in particular, I'd have a look at him at the bigger price. He's 14 to 1. He had three shots in the game, two on target. And the way the Dutch set up with that 5-3-2, it forced the Ukraine to come in narrow. And you've seen the chances that Dumfries got. So you could have a look at him at 14 to 1. Or Wijnaldum is in there at 15 to 2 as well. He had five shots in the game with two on target. Target, uh, but it should be an exciting match. Hopefully, it's a, a bit of a repeat of what we've seen Sunday night. 
Okay, and uh, sticking with goal scorers, I believe OG is currently uh, leading the golden boot charge. What's going on there, please? Yeah, so in terms of top goal score market, we started with three clear favourites prior to the tournament. You had your Kane and Lukaku at about 8 1, and Mbappe slightly bigger at 9 10 1. No guarantee he was on penalties. But Kane and Mbappe have fired blanks in the opening game, although Mbappe looked incredible. I wouldn't I wouldn't put, hold that against him. He was fantastic against the Germans. But Lukaku scored two goals on the opening night, and he's actually, he has us worried. He's shortening now to 13 to 5. If you have a look elsewhere, Ronaldo, he actually drifted pre tournament. He was in single figures, went out as big as 14 to 1. He's now into 92 after the brace against Hungary. But for me, if you're still looking for a bit of an interest in this market, have a look at Spain. If Luis Enrique mixes things up, the number nine in the Spanish team gets the most chances. So if he drops Morata, it'd either be Ferran Torres will move into the centre or potentially we should see Jared Moreno getting a start. They're 40 to 1 and 50 to 1, respectively, still in the top goal scorer market and fully expect Spain to score a bag full of goals against Poland and Slovakia before getting out of the group. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Place a 4 plus fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 80plusbgambleaware.org. Listener, you can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic for unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020 in 2021. All the articles, all the podcasts ad-free and Q&As with the writers as well. It's only a pound a month for the first six months. So head over to theathletic.com slash totally to sign up. You can read Michael's take on France beating Germany on goals, but not expected goals and what that means for the weaknesses in Didier Deschamps' system. Some non-Euros news to finish today. The Premier League released the fixture list for next season on Wednesday, to which the footballing world's let out a collective. Not now, mate. Uh, Sergio Ramos is leaving Real Madrid. Michael, if you could pick a Premier League club for him to join, who who would you choose and why would it be Burnley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, that would work nicely. Um, I think anywhere would be quite fun. I mean, just somewhere where he's... I mean, Burnley, he'd fit in very well for his style, but almost like an Arsenal would be quite fun, I think, just to bring something different to that. But uh, yeah, interested to see where he goes. Everton with Rafa Benitez is my shout. Right, well, this is what we're coming on to, Sash. Rafa Benitez to Everton uh, is not confirmed at the time of recording, but but if Jim White says it, then it must be uh, it must be loud. Uh, what would this do to his to his Liverpool legacy if he was to make that short trip across Stanley Park? I see Agent Rafa's been trending on Twitter. Um, would you be hurt? Would you say fair enough? You're not going to go and win the Champions League with them. Go and go and have a couple of seasons. Uh, it won't do anything for me. Uh, I remember. Back in the day, I, I went to see him uh, talk about his book about Liverpool's Champions League uh, runs. And at that stage, I don't think he had a high-level job for a couple of years. And I remember thinking, Rafa, you need to get a job like ASAP. And I think the following month, he joined Chelsea. And at the time, it was a bit of an, uh, you know, raised an eyebrow. But I, I didn't, not for me, because I, I just look and think, you have to work. You have to work at a top club. You have to do what you, what you do. Um, and I think... You know, at Chelsea, he had the experience of the fan base not liking him very much at all. Yet he, he won them a trophy and he won a, he, I think he did a very good job there. So for me, if he joins Everton, you know, best of luck to him. Uh, not in terms of, you know, I, I'm not coming from a position where oh, I don't think he's going to threaten Liverpool, therefore whatever. I just generally want him to to enjoy himself, to do a good job. You know, he's, he lives, you know, he still has a house on the Wirral. He's, he likes to work in England. Uh, so if Everton works for him, I think best of luck to him. 
And actually, Michael, he feels like a, a much more like what Everton need at this moment in time than than Carlo Ancelotti ever did. And and despite the Liverpool connection, much more appealing than than somebody like Nuno or, or Eddie Howe or or Graham Potter or any of the other names that have been mentioned in dispatches. I suppose so. I must confess, I find it I find it quite boring to be honest. I I, I respect Benitez a lot. But I've I've really seen him managing sides in pretty much the same way for the best part of twenty years, and I, I just I'm sure he'll improve Everton's fortunes, but I can't really imagine him making them into a a side I'll, I'll look forward to watching. And I do think there are players there that, with a certain manager, could be a really thrilling team. So, yeah, I'm, I I found I found that news quite underwhelming. I must say, but kind of I mean it's been on the not necessarily on the cards, but. He's always, like Sasha says, he's always retained a house around there. He's made no secret of the fact that he loves working in England to the extent that he went down with Newcastle into the Championship and took him back up. And I don't think, obviously, a return to Liverpool was never on the cards. So it was one of those jobs that it was going to come up sooner or later. So I don't think it's a huge surprise, to be honest. And like Sasha says, probably less controversial than him taking the Chelsea job only two years after he left Liverpool, considering... When he was at Liverpool, Chelsea were almost the biggest rivals in a way in terms of the trophies they were going for and meeting in the Champions League. So, yeah, I'm not hugely surprised, but also not hugely fascinated by it, I must admit. I guess for Liverpool supporters as well, Sasha, it's it's easier to deal with because you've had success since he's been away. You've won the Premier League and the Champions League. You know, if you walk past your ex in the street and she's with somebody slightly less good looking than you, you think, oh, yeah, you made a mistake dumping me, didn't you? <laughs> um, I don't know what I, I haven't felt like that towards Rafa because you know when he left in 2010 uh, the club went in a very good place he wasn't you know the, the, the turbulent months followed uh, his departure uh, so again I could perfectly understand why why, why um, maybe it might have been a good idea for him to leave then um, so I, I it, the fact that Liverpool have been successful in the meantime yeah I don't I mean maybe uh, like my sort of memories of um, Liverpool under Benitez, uh, you know, slightly roasted into spectacles and uh, perhaps, because I, I had I had a really good time following Liverpool at the time. Uh, I enjoyed the fact, of course, beyond Istanbul, Liverpool became a force in, in Europe and, you know, you can never take that away. It doesn't matter who he manages now. Um, so I think, I don't really know what he needs to do, basically, to tarnish those happy memories. So I, even if Liverpool weren't successful in the meantime and Benitez went to Everton, I mean, I'm like, yeah, as I said, best of luck. Remember when he went to Chelsea, you know, Liverpool weren't being exactly successful back then either. So it's not, it was never a really, relative success was never really an issue. Well, we'll see how that one unfolds uh, as the next couple of days go on. But that's going to wrap things up for this edition of the Totally Football Show. All the thanks to Sasha, to Michael, to Niels and to producer Abby for their contributions today. We'll be back tomorrow with Karl Anka and Daniel Storey on board as we gear up for the big one. Yep, Sweden versus Slovakia. Catch you then. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. <laughs>